This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 4, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Just a handful of U.S. states either permit aid in dying or are poised to do so. Ethical questions about the process of helping someone else die remain. At a recent Cato Policy Forum, Barbara Mancini of Compassion and Choices told her own story about the death of her father. First, I want to state the obvious. You are going to die. The people you love and care about will die. Everyone dies. It is a universal experience. Unfortunately, in the United States, we have a lot of difficulty discussing the end of life. We live in a culture that is profoundly disturbed by the concept of death. And it's kind of like acknowledging the reality of dying is an admission of defeat. That's one reason why only 26% of Americans have completed end-of-life directives. These are the legal documents that have your end-of-life wishes in writing. If you don't have this, what will happen if you become unable to make your own health care decisions? You need to have a health care decision maker or proxy who knows your values, preferences, and wishes at the end of life. These discussions are vitally important because we die differently in 2016. A hundred or even 50 years ago, people lived shorter lives. Well, we now have medical treatments and technology that allow people to live well into old age, even those who have significant or life-threatening health problems. So, People die older, they die sicker. For most people, their deaths are prolonged. They are neither quick nor painless. And most people, about 80%, will die in hospitals and nursing homes. As the writer Kent Russell put it, history is irony on the move. Turns out that by so bettering and extending our lives, we have reachieved suffering. Now, despite our reticence to talk about the end of life, there is common agreement among people on how they want their lives to end. People want to die at home in the presence of their loved ones. They want their pain and discomfort managed. They'd like their spiritual needs respected, and most people do not want to become a devastating financial or emotional burden on their loved ones. And that takes us into my story. It has to do with my father, his end-of-life wishes, the need for better care at the end of life, and who gets to decide how you will die. In February 2013, I was arrested in Pennsylvania and prosecuted on the charge of aiding the attempted suicide of my dying 93-year-old father. Instead of having the peaceful and dignified death that he hoped for, he died after prolonged suffering 
and being subjected to exactly the medical treatment that he specified in his written advance directives that he never wanted. The circumstances and the politics that allowed this to happen could certainly happen again. And as I tell my story today, you will see that there are multiple forces that will prevent the dying from having their wishes honored and that can place them and their loved ones in jeopardy. My story is a cautionary tale. This is my father, Joe Yorshaw. He was one of 12 children born into a family of Eastern European immigrants. He was a decorated World War II veteran. And after the war, he worked hard to establish his own business. He was a contractor, and he did heavy excavation work. He was very talented. He could build anything, and he could fix anything. And my mother likes to say that she never had to call a repair person for any reason until the last year of my father's life. He was fiercely independent, strong-willed, and he had very focused conviction about how he wanted to live. He had a number of medical problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, kidney disease, and he'd even had a stroke at one time. And at the age of 92, he made the decision to stop taking the medicines that treated these conditions. Why? They weren't helping the quality of his life, which was getting worse and worse. He discussed his decision with my family and with his doctor, and we all agreed to respect his wishes. Before 2000, February 2013, I was just a regular person. I've been married for 21 years. We now have two daughters in college. I worked as an ER nurse. My parents lived in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. It's a small town about 100 miles north of my home in Philadelphia. I was very involved with my parents. We spoke on the phone every day. And as my father's health worsened, I visited frequently. By the age of 93, my father was terminally ill. He enrolled in home hospice care, and he was having significant pain. As a nurse, I know that pain and other distressing symptoms often worsen as a person nears death. My father asked me to hand him his pain medicine. It was a partly filled one ounce vial of liquid morphine. He always opened that childproof cap and we would measure. I did the same routine with him that day. But before I could measure out the dose, he quickly took what was left in that vial. I know he was having severe pain. The previous night was the worst he'd ever had. When my mother tried to remove a loose button-down shirt, he cried out that it felt like she was breaking his bones. Whether his intention was to do anything other than relieve his pain, he didn't say. A home hospice nurse arrived about two hours later, and I told her dad took the morphine. He was drowsy, but he was not unconscious. He was breathing normally, he was able to follow commands, and he was able to respond to questions. 
The hospice nurse and her supervisor insisted that my father be taken to the hospital to be treated for an overdose. Now, my father had written advance directives that clearly stated he wanted no life-prolonging treatment. I was his legal health care proxy. He had a standing do not resuscitate order, and he was adamant that he never wanted to go to a hospital, and that was documented in his hospice record. I tried in vain to make sure my father's wishes were respected. But the hospice called 911. Police and then paramedics arrived. And by police order, my father was removed from his bed and taken to the hospital for treatment. Ironically, but sadly, when the paramedics asked my father if he was having any pain, for the very first time, his answer was no. I was arrested then and there, right in the house. I was charged with aiding and attempted suicide. This is a second degree felony in Pennsylvania, and conviction carries up to 10 years in prison. <coughs> the police captain who arrested me told me I no longer had any say in what happened to my father. My mother had gone to the ER to be with my dad and she was asked by the hospital to give her consent for my father to be treated. The police informed my mother that if my father died, things would go much worse for me. My 84-year-old mother was placed in the agonizing position of having to choose between honoring her promise to my father, whom she loved and was married to for 62 years, or helping me her daughter. So in order to help me, my mother gave consent for the hospital to treat my father. Two hours after arriving in the ER, more drowsy but still breathing normally, my father was given a medicine to reverse the effects of the morphine. He was livid that he'd been brought to the hospital. And he knew I was in trouble. He shouted and pleaded, don't hurt Barbara. Don't let them hurt Barbara. My father suffered tremendously, not only from the unwanted treatment he received in the hospital, but from the anguish of knowing that I was being accused of helping him end his life. He died four days later from pneumonia, not from a morphine overdose. The Pennsylvania Attorney General then began a year-long prosecution of me. I was placed on unpaid leave from my job. The prosecutor had the court put a gag order on me, so I couldn't talk publicly about my case, nor could I refute any of the misinformation that was out there and I incurred over $100,000 in legal fees. Now my case received widespread media coverage. It became national and global news. And the reaction was shock, 
an outrage. There were multiple opinion pieces and editorials written about my case, and not one supported the decision to prosecute, which is very rare in a criminal case. Exactly one year after my father's death, a judge in a scathing 46-page ruling ruled that the case had no merit and the charge was dismissed. Without any apology from either the hospice or the prosecutor, nor any recognition of the ordeal that they'd put us through, we were left to pick up the pieces of our lives. So the question is, how could such an or horrible ordeal happen? There's four parts to the answer. The first was failure of Hospice of Central Pennsylvania. Now, as you may know, hospice is a model of end-of-life care based on the philosophy that each of us has the right to die pain-free and with dignity and our families will receive the necessary support to allow us to do so. I fully support good hospice care. We had relatives who had used hospice in the past, and they had very good experiences. I expected no less from my father, but what he got was something very different. My father was in home hospice care for two weeks with no medicine for pain. I called the hospice and I asked them to prescribe morphine, which is reasonable and appropriate. Morphine is the most commonly used medicine to treat end-of-life pain. Well, the prosecution used that phone call as evidence against me. They stated that it showed I had a nefarious intent to help my father end his life. I didn't know at the time that I made that phone call, but morphine had indeed been prescribed for my father two weeks earlier, and the hospice withheld it. They later stated they did that because my father said he didn't want to take any medicine. Now, I will agree. He did not want to take any medicine if he thought it would prolong his life, but he was self-medicating at home with lots of Tylenol and ibuprofen to treat his end-of-life pain. The hospice used this phrase frequently in their documentation about my father, comfortable despite pain. I think it qualifies as an oxymoron, but I will tell you that my family and I vigorously dispute that characterization of how my father felt. In court, my attorney asked the hospice supervisor if my father had the right to have as much medicine as he needed to relieve his pain. And her answer was, that is not a stated right. This same supervisor also testified that my father should not receive any more than a very low dose of morphine, two and a half milligrams, at any given time. This attitude guaranteed that my father would suffer until the very end.
And it also contradicts what the United States Supreme Court ruled in the Glucksburg and Quill cases in 1997. The majority opinion in both of these cases said, terminally ill patients have the right to as much medicine as they need to relieve their pain, even if it advances the time of death. This is settled law. I am truly at a loss to see how withholding or limiting pain medicine at the end of life comports with the philosophy of hospice care or honors this decision by the Supreme Court. The second element of this ordeal is the law. The Pennsylvania statute that criminalizes aiding a suicide is vaguely written, as are the statutes in almost every other state. None of them specify what actions rise to the level of assisting or aiding a suicide. And the problem with a vaguely written criminal law is that it is then left open to interpretation. The prosecutor in my case interpreted the law to mean that providing a dying man his legally prescribed medicine, which he was permitted by law and by physician order to self-administer, rose to the felony level of aiding a suicide attempt. So that means that caregivers have to fear arrest and imprisonment for advocating for their loved ones. And the dying have to fear having unwanted treatment forced on them just because someone in a position of power decides that their wishes will not be honored, whether they disagree with their choices or whether they feel it's their right to impose their personal beliefs on other people. In fact, one out of four Americans have experienced unwanted or excessive medical treatment, which equates to more than 25 million Americans. Now certainly, people bear some responsibility if they have not articulated their wishes. But for people like my father, who openly discussed his end-of-life wishes and had them written down in legal documents, to have them overridden is just unconscionable. My father survived the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And the suffering at the end of his life was compounded not only by his undertreated pain and his anguish over my arrest, but also by having unwanted medical treatment forced upon him. So I will tell you some of what his last days were like. In the ER, he was frantic and distraught over my arrest. He pulled out his IV, pulled off his heart monitor, didn't cooperate with anything. He was admitted to the hospital, and as you probably know, that means lots of needle sticks for blood tests and IVs. His hands were restrained. He very quickly developed a high fever 
They gave him Tylenol for that, but he also had ice packs placed around his body to cool it down. His kidneys failed. And because his kidneys failed, the potassium level in his blood became dangerously high. He wasn't on kidney dialysis, so the next best treatment for that was to give him a medicine called KXLate, which lowers the potassium level by causing massive diarrhea. It worked well. The profuse diarrhea then led to the loss of the top layer of his skin, front and back, wherever that diarrhea touched. His skin was open and raw and red. He no longer spoke, but he moaned. His chest x-ray showed pneumonia in both lungs. His failing heart and kidneys could no longer handle the IV fluid he was being given, and he developed such massive fluid in both of his arms that they became unrecognizable. And finally, on the day he died, my father was given morphine to treat his discomfort. The third part of this ordeal is criminal, inju criminal justice injustice in the United States. This is a Cato Institute audience, so I know that you are probably well aware of how prosecutors use their enormous power to pressure people who've been charged with crimes into plea bargains. This way the prosecutor wins a conviction without the trouble of preparing for a hearing or trial. And about 95% of criminal cases in the United States are settled this way. Most people charged with crimes agree to plea bargains because the consequences of possibly losing at trial are dire. Prosecutors will demand much harsher sentences for people who insist on their constitutional right to trial. So that pressure happened to me too but I did have my preliminary hearing, and after that I filed a petition for habeas corpus, which is a motion to dismiss. And I have to tell you, it was quite a drama in the courtroom at that hearing when my attorney pulled out the sheet from the hospice record that showed my father had been prescribed a much larger dose of morphine the day he enrolled in hospice, two weeks prior to my ever calling about it. The prosecutor had to admit in open public court that he had never read the hospice record. And he had also to admit that this evidence was completely inconsistent with the testimony of his witnesses. Why would a prosecutor not even read their own evidence? The only explanation I can think of is that he fully expected I would succumb to that pressure to plea bargain, and it just didn't matter to them to verify what those witnesses said. The fourth element of this ordeal was politics. One more person wanted to see this prosecution go forward, and that was the local county coroner, David Moylan. The coroner ruled that my father died of a morphine overdose, 
and he also ruled that his manner of death was a homicide. A homicide. Now, I knew that my father died of pneumonia, among his other terminal conditions. But I had independent experts, including a forensic toxicologist, look at my father's records for an objective evaluation. And they all agreed. He did not die of a morphine overdose. And I'll quote the toxicologist. This was not a lethal level of morphine by any means. Now, why would the coroner say that my father's death was a homicide? A few short weeks after releasing my father's death certificate, Coroner Moylan publicly announced that he was running for United States Congress on a Sanctity of Life platform. The coroner was asked in an interview what made him decide to run for Congress. And this was his answer. It really just boiled down to one primary issue, and it's one I feel strongly about, the sanctity of human life. It's so important to defend human life from conception to natural death. He also had this to say. It's very important that every decision you make as coroner to determine the cause and manner of death See, how does it affect the sanctity of life? I've been doing that for the last year and a half. The coroner has every right to his religious beliefs. He's an openly devout Catholic. He has every right to have political ambitions. But once you inject religion and politics into death investigations, the consequences are catastrophic. I am well aware of what the implications were for me if a judge or jury had believed what this coroner said. Even the prosecutor never went so far as to cause, call this a homicide. In fact, wrote in a brief to the judge that they never argued that I was responsible for my father's death. So to recap these four things, Failure of hospice, a vague criminal statute, criminal injustice in the United States, and politics all came together to create this horrific ordeal for my father and me. Do you think this could happen again? Well, here's what the Attorney General of Pennsylvania had to say when the judge dismissed my case. If the citizens of the Commonwealth disagree with an existing statute, it is incumbent upon the people to work with the General Assembly to amend the law. Until such amendment occurs, it is the legal responsibility of prosecutors to enforce the law as it currently exists. And I might add, however they choose to interpret it. I'm gonna share an opinion uh, written by Paul Carpenter. He's a journalist with the Allentown Morning Call, and he wrote a number of columns about my case. He said, if medical people can ignore a do not resuscitate order, a living will, or any other obstacle to the profits of prolonged agony, 
And if Pennsylvania's top law enforcement officer sides with them by going after a family member who tried to protect a family member's dignity, it's a frightening threat to individual freedom, indeed. During the year that I was under prosecution, I spent my time doing my own research. I researched hospice care and pain management at the end of life. I researched the criminal laws. And I researched the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. 18 years ago, Oregon became the first state in the country to legalize medical aid in dying, which allows a terminally ill person who meets the eligibility requirements to obtain a prescription to bring about a peaceful death. Opponents forcefully argued that allowing this to happen would imperil good end-of-life care by providing an easier alternative. But the opposite happened. Within a year of the passage of this law, end-of-life care in Oregon improved in dramatic and measurable ways. Oregon's at the top of all states for appropriate utilization of hospice care, for the use of medical morphine to treat pain, for the honoring of advanced directives, and more people in Oregon die in their own homes than in any other state in the country. The law has worked so well that it prompted bioethicist Arthur Kaplan to say this, the Oregon law has benefited many more people than have actually used it. In the 18 years that the Oregon law has been in effect, a full third of the people who obtain a prescription don't even use it. But they are comforted by having that option available should they feel they need it. The safeguards written into the law work. Medical aid in dying allows terminally ill adults the option of having a prescription to alleviate their suffering if it becomes unbearable. And it allows them to have control over their own dying process. There are specific detailed procedural precautions built into the law. But very briefly, to be eligible, a person must be terminally ill, as determined by two independent physicians, they must be mentally competent or capable of making their own decisions, be able to self-administer the prescription, and be at least 18 years old. Support for medical aid in dying continues to grow. Nationwide, 69% of people approve of it. And a clear majority of physicians now support medical aid in dying, 54%. It's legal now in five states, Washington, Oregon, California, Montana, and Vermont. And in 2015, 23 states plus the District of Columbia introduced aid and dying legislation. Unfortunately, misunderstandings about the law and misinformation from opponents have prevented the law from passing in these other states. 
I have three takeaways from what I'm saying today. First is that we need to improve end-of-life care, and quality hospice care is vital to that end. Second point is an ordeal like this could certainly happen again. And thirdly, medical aid in dying and the benefits that this option brings should be a choice available in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Stanford University did a study last year in the San Francisco area, and they looked at diverse, cultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual groups. And they asked these groups, what kind of care do you want at the end of life? And even in spite of this diversity, there was a common response to that. People want to live as long as they have a good quality of life. But when it is their time, they want to be consulted so that they die in a way that they are respected. So that brings us back to this. Who gets to decide how you will die? You think about it. With the exception of how we die, most people have the ability to control the major decisions that affect our lives. This is an intensely personal issue, and it closely aligns with a lot of the principles of libertarianism, such as the principle of personal liberty that says individuals should be free to make choices for themselves and to accept responsibility for the consequences of the choices they make and the principle of self-ownership. Individuals own their own bodies, and they have rights over them that other individuals, groups, and governments may not violate. We live in a pluralistic democracy, and people's options at the end of life should not be limited because of theological doctrine or other people's personal ideologies. The means to alleviate suffering, whether it's through high quality hospice care, medical aid in dying, or both, should not be limited. My father had a terrible death. And my family and I continue to be haunted by this horrible ordeal that was his end of life. I don't know if my father would have chosen medical aid in dying if that option had been available to him. But I do know that he would have wanted the choice and he would have wanted whatever he had chosen to be honored and respected. Thank you. Barbara Mancini is with Compassion and Choices. You can watch the full discussion on the rights of the dying at our website, cato.org.